podcast made by, for, and about the Oscars. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, hello, hello, hello. This is not Fans on the Run, and I'm not Ethan Alexanian. I, I felt I had to offset the fact that every time I do this show, I feel the need to introduce myself and say the name of the show, even though the intro of the show just said the name of the show and who I am. So I, I needed to throw some spice in there just to shake things up, because you, you can't let um, you can't let something sit for too long. And if you let me sit for too long, I start to ramble like I'm doing right now. But that's that's the show. And this is what I do. But enough of my delusional ramblings. Uh, we we have a fantastic guest for you today. He's someone who I've wanted to have on the show for a while. And it's just coincidentally, he has a book coming out. So it's it's the time to strike. He, he's a writer. He's a photographer. He's a he's a well of knowledge. He hosts what I've thought of as the Beatle Podcaster's favorite Beatle podcast, Producing the Beatles. And he's the co-author of a new book with friend of the show, Ken Womack, called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison Clapton and assorted other assorted love songs. I, I Of course, I, I stumble somewhere in the introduction. I always do. Please welcome Jason Krupa. Hands on the run. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That, that title is a mouthful, so uh, I get it. I, I just don't even mention the subtitle anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's but, you know, the, the book. Yes. But thank you for mentioning it. And thank you for mentioning the podcast. That's, that's very nice of you. Oh, I, I love the show. Well, thanks. There will be more soon, I promise. Everybody, that's the most asked question is when is the next season starting? So I'm working on them now. I, I promise. Slaving away every day and, and writing a little bit. Uh. For for the last few episodes of this show, I'd like to kind of start with a, a Beatle palate cleanser, so sure. to speak. Um, what what was the last album you listened to that was not, you know, Beatle-related or Beatle-adjacent? Mm, I mean, I'm constantly listening to music. Um, I discover things on YouTube. I, I've gone through this sort of, like, string quartet, Beethoven string quartet thing in the past couple of weeks where I was listening to a lot of that on YouTube, just sort of scrolling through. There are only 16 of them. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small body of work, but that was, that was kind of hitting the spot for a while. So, so it's, it's Beethoven string quartets for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. That's probably, I mean, there's, there are other stuff in between, but um, I mean, it could be, it could be yeah. anything. It could be that it could be, you know, some, some rock album or it could be some weird avant-garde piece that I found. I mean, I don't know. I have very, very strange tastes sometimes. Well, I, I've always found strange tastes to be the most interesting tastes. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, uh, it's a good way to get rid of people at parties. <laughs> oh, I related to that comment a little too much. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm just going to jump right into it. Jason. How did you first discover the Beatles? I think I must have been in my teens, maybe even a little earlier than that. Um, I remember my my dad always talking about "I want to hold your hand" as being this big deal to him, and it was a big deal for a lot of people who were, you know, young in the in nineteen sixty four in America. Um, and that was really the one song that he, I think he gravitated to and he did because he was not a hippie and he he didn't sort of go with what was going on in mainstream culture but like you know like everybody I think that song just grabbed people's imaginations and uh, so I think that was probably the first song I was aware of and then I think I mean I feel like it was just through osmosis like being around people who were talking about music and listening to music and seeing things on television and when I was in my teens in the eighties, hard days night was re-released and it was, it was shown on cable. So that was the first time I'd, I'd seen that. Um, and I had a, I had a neighbor, we had a neighbor in a, um, an apartment complex that we lived in who had a huge record collection. And so he made tapes for me. That um, always helps. And actually I think he's probably the one that gave me 
they gave me my first copy of all things must pass on cassette. <laughs> so I probably should thank him. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where all that began. Um, so uh, apart from, you know, I want to hold your hand. What was the first uh, Beatle album that you owned yourself? Oh, I, I want to hold your hands, not an album. I don't right. know why I said that. No. Uh, well, I convinced my parents to buy me the red, uh, album 62 to 66 at some point I was probably 15 or, or so. And, um, but as far as album, I used to go to, uh, thrift stores, uh, with my parents and I, I found a cheap copy of Sergeant Pepper. Um, so that was probably the first proper album that I bought myself with my own money. Yeah. So that was the, that was the first, album I bought with my own money. And then I just sort of, I, it wasn't, you know, that was sort of the gateway to other, other albums. Um, and I was reading a lot of, you know, writing about music at that time. So, um, I was aware of, you know, how critics held them in regard and what people were saying about them. And, um, and then I, you know, like everybody, I first Beatle book was Beatles forever. So that, that yeah, was really the, the big the Nick Schaffner, right? Big, big, uh, big boost right there. Uh, it's it, that seems to be a, a, a staple of everyone I, I talk to from like the ages of like who is coming of age from like the 70s through even the 90s. Yeah, it's a great introduction to uh, to their music and, and everything about them. I mean, you really distilled so much that was exciting about them in that book. So, well, you had mentioned, uh, you know, your uh, music taste. What what kind of a, a musical background did you come from? Like, what, what kind of music were your parents listening to in your house? I mean, my dad had, had a kind of odd taste. He listened to a lot of film scores, believe it or not, and he had a thing for the Kingston Trio, big on folk music of the late 50s, early 60s. Not a Bob Dylan fan, really. Um and my, okay. we, we lived with my grandfather for a while and he played uh, piano a little bit, you know, thing, you know, just really simple pieces that he, I think he taught himself and my mother played a little bit. Um, so I had that around me and I was always, I was always kind of picking away at the piano and never had proper music lessons or anything, but I was always, in, you know, there was always music around. Um, again, kind of hitting you with a bit of a, a broad question and it, it can always be answered in many different ways, but what, what do the Beatles mean to you specifically? Hmm. Wow. That's tough. I know. I, I'm a... <laughs> sorry to hit you. With that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it, there's so much there. It's a great story just in and of itself. And I mean, I look at, you know, a lot of things through the lens of the podcast now. And I, you know, I tell people the subtext of the podcast is that I'm, I'm sort of teaching music and I'm teaching concepts about creativity and how the studio works and, and how you collaborate. And I'm using the Beatles to do that. And they are kind of a, like, they're a really good example of, of something that, connects to everything else. Like everything is connected already, but they are, they are sort of explicitly connected because they were so curious and they've had such an impact on, you know, the, the world since the world at the time and the world since, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so huge. It's hard to say, <laughs> you know, what they mean to me. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I mean, it comes down to the end of it is that I just love the music and, and the more I look into the music because of the podcast, the more I learn about, you know, just simple things like the kind of harmonies that they were, that they were discovering, whether it's vocal harmonies or instrumental harmonies. And I just, just hearing that stuff. And, you know, the great thing I get to do in the podcast is I get to take these things apart and put them back together and, and for me hearing an individual, maybe, you know, a vocal line against another line and you put them together and you hear how those, those two elements harmonize 
is, is just, you know, like something in my brain explodes when I hear stuff like that. And it just happens over and over and over with this music. And I know that's happening in all music to some degree or another, but, um, they just, there's just so much to discover. I think still, even having, having listened to them for so many years. If you'll allow me to, you know, throw a, a compliment out there. I was listening to, you know, as I was, you know, preparing earlier today to the, to the show you did with the, the, the redone string arrangements for Strawberry Fields. And I was just kind of blown away. Thank you. Yeah, that was, uh, I had somebody transcribe the score, um, and then we recorded it with seven musicians in the studio, the, you know, the exact score and, um, to the Beatles rhythm track. And I learned so much doing that. I can't even really articulate what I learned from doing that. Um, but I feel like I know so much more as a result of having done it. And I, and I, you know, I really hope people get something out of it by listening to it that, you know, that's, um, obviously that's the point of the podcast. What, what was the, Oh, but I'm <laughs> well, glad you like it. <laughs> thank you for making it. Um, what, what was the genesis of your podcast? Like what, what kind of inspired you to start? Well, the, the, I guess the, uh, precipitating event you would call it is, uh, I'm friends with Tim Riley, who I'm sure we all know wrote, tell me why. And he wrote a, an excellent John Lennon biography that I, I helped with, uh, I contributed to a few years ago. Um, really, really insightful book. Um, we were talking one day and he said, you should do a podcast. You have all, you know, I, I've been collecting bootlegs and outtakes and all this stuff for years and years and years, probably 20 years at this point. And, uh, I would send him compilations of, you know, like sort of putting it all together and making sense of all these disparate, you know, bootlegs out there and saying like, well, here's what, ha here's, here's yeah. June of 66. Like here's, you know, and it's been, you know, purple chick did it. And a lot of other people have done it since, but I would send him these things. And, and so he said, you know, do a podcast. And at the time I had no idea what a podcast was. <laughs> so I had to go listen to a bunch and figure out, you know, what they were and then what I wanted to do with it. Um, cause there are a lot of different kinds. There's like, you know, this, this kind of podcast and then there are the well-produced ones. And I thought I'm going to do the hard one. Let me do the one that's really going to stress me out. That's <laughs> this one and the well-produced one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, your, yours, yours sounds good too. I'm saying like the like intensive, like I I'll have 15 or 20 tracks sometimes, you know, and it's, yeah. it, that's insane. Don't do that. <laughs> oh no i i know exactly what you yeah. mean it's just you know i'm i'm pulling yeah, your leg no, a little I, I don't mean to to disparage anybody who's just who sets up two microphones and talks that's fantastic i listen to a lot of those myself um it's just i you know doing what i do takes so much time because there are so many moving parts and so many elements and um i just don't know a way of of presenting this information in a you know a simple kind of sit down way so, um, yeah, there you go. I hope that answered your question. Oh, you mentioned the secret buzzword of the show, uh, bootlegs. Uh, <laughs> uh what, uh, what's your favorite, you know, again, I'm asking a lot of, you know, what's your, blah, 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 blah. uh, fuck. I I'm deconstructing my show <laughs> at this point. I don't even know. Uh, what's your favorite bootleg? Uh, Ooh. I mean, you know, I have taken them apart over the years so, so much and put them into what I called chronology. A lot of people, you know, uh, online who are downloading were probably aware of that. Maybe, I mean, that's, that's sort of a subculture of people who traded bootlegs for a long time online. Um, but so I, I took them apart and put them together into these compilations. But I think, I think one of the ones that really blew me away the most was uh like the purple chick yeah yeah um but the like just a raw bootleg from a bootleg company was uh like it's not too bad the you know the strawberry fields uh the demos and then the 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 studio outtakes that i think that was one where i was like whoa what is this now uh kind of back to your podcast instead of me having a meltdown <laughs> um it's it's a very 
George Martin centered show. And what what drew you to George specifically? Well, years ago when I started, I I you know was collecting all these bootlegs and making these compilations, and I and I thought I want to write something. Um, because I when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer and went to school, have a degree in English, and focus on literature. And um, I sort of set that aside because I didn't really know what I wanted to write once I got out of school. And uh, so I was collecting all this material and I thought, you know, I should write something about this because I would, you know, I would just make notes to myself and it all started to look like something at some point. And uh, I started gravitating toward revolver because I started, I began to realize how that was so much the center of, of everything. You know, it's like, that's, that's kind of the line of demarcation between, you know, writing songs and recording songs and singing, you know, you know, getting everything polished and professional. And then you go into experimentation and turning the studio upside down and using it as an instrument. And so I thought, okay, I want to write about revolver. And as I began looking into that, I realized George Martin was a big moving force in this. And he was facilitating this, you know, this reinvention of the studio. And I thought, well, how did he know how to do this stuff? Like, who is this guy? Because his book, you know, is okay. It's very, very chatty and sort of casual and, um, but not really informative, you know? So I just started digging and digging and digging and digging. And, and again, Tim Riley's like, you have a George Martin biography here. Like, what are you doing? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a really overwhelming project. So for a while, that's that's kind of what I was going to do. I was going to do a George Martin biography. And I I went to England three times and went to EMI archives. And I even got a private tour at one point of Abbey Road, which was which is very nice of them. Um, apparently George was there while I was in the building. Wait, <laughs> hold on. You, you got to you got to go to Abbey yeah. Road. You got to go to Abbey Road and tour the EMI archives. Yeah, well, I, EMI archives made. I, I I requested a lot of material, and and they brought it out in folders and and they brought tape boxes. I asked for for George Martin's, you know, lots of pre Beatles productions. Peter Sellers, for instance, um, they they brought me stacks. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, they brought me. So I made I made photocopies of all of this stuff. Um, and at one point I was over there and I was talking to one of the archivists and, and uh, somebody came in and he said, well, I'll give you a tour of Abbey road tomorrow. If you, if you're free. And I said, Oh, you know, I think I can make some time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but that yeah. was around, I think that was in 2000. What are you going to say? No, I know. Right. Oh no. I've got a, I've got a lunch date. I've got to sleep in. Um, and I think that was around the time yeah. that, that George and Giles were working on love. Um, because we couldn't go into stu the studio two control room and he, the person who was giving me the tour couldn't tell me exactly what was going on, but he said, I'm sure you can figure it out. And I'm, I thought, well, okay, I'm like six feet from <laughs> George Barton. <laughs> Hope maybe he'll come out and get some tea in the, in the, you know, canteen. No, he didn't. Um, so, yeah, so it, it began as this George Martin biography and it just it, it sort of ballooned and and I kept doing research and I was probably I was writing, but I was probably never going to finish it. And then Ken Womack came along and, and wanted to do a biography. And I thought, well, he's working on this and he seems like he's really going to get this done. I'll sort of throw in with him and help him however I can. So I gave him um, some material. I mean, Honestly, it was minuscule compared to the research he did. I think, you know, I want to give him credit for for doing the the legwork on those books. Um, but, you know, I, I contributed a little bit. And, you know, we've been friends ever since. That was, I don't know how many years ago, but Mark Lewison introduced us. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been sort of looking, this is dovetailing into the book, but we've been looking for a project to work on together and, and uh, that's that's led us to this book. And of course, the the George Martin biographies that you speak of are 
Ken's uh, maximum volume and sound pictures. Yes, yes, yes. People who are interested in the subject should check those out. Well, if, if you're interested in the Beatles, like in general, like check out any of Ken's books. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, You, you mentioned uh, uh, one Mr. Mark Lewison briefly. And in my, you know, preparing for the show, uh, I came across that you contributed to Tune In. Yes. Um, we've been corresponding for years and have, uh, you know, met a few times. Um, and he's always been very supportive and, you know, we share information back and forth. And I uh, I think the, the main thing that I contributed to that was... I had I had found the engineer on the Decca sessions, um, a guy named Mike Savage, and I was I just started randomly calling people that had worked at Decca in the '60s, and I, I talked to the Moody the Moody Blues engineer and producer, and I forget which one of them told me, but I said, you know, I was just sort of trying to find out about Decca too because there wasn't a lot written down at the time. And, uh, and learn about the studio and sort of go into the background. This is me going deep background into like, okay, let's learn about the Beatles recording before they got to George Martin, right? And I mentioned to whoever I talked to, uh, I said, yeah, nobody seems to know who recorded that DECA session. He's like, oh, everybody knows. I know. I'll give you his number. So he gave me his phone number and his email. And I talked to him the next week. Um and just lovely guy. And he, he, uh, I sent him the, the, the deck, one of the deck of bootlegs. And, um, so we, we did one interview and I was going to interview him again after he listened to the, to the recording. And, uh, I emailed him back and he had passed away. Uh, his son responded he said, oh. I'm so sorry. You know, he, he died of a heart attack suddenly. So, and, and, but I, but I passed his information on to Mark and Mark interviewed him as well. So just in time, he got to speak to him. Um, so, I mean, I'm, there may have been other things. I don't remember exactly what, but we would write back and forth and, um, you know, I share information once in a while. He would ask me a question, you know, what I thought of something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly. It was, you know, he talked to billions of people for that. So <laughs> it's not like I had any major part of it, but I, you know, little, little drips and drops. Sorry, I, I, I keep going back in my head to something you said a few minutes ago about Revolver. It's that's when they, you know, went from, you know, writing songs to recording songs. Right. And it's, I think that's the best way I've ever heard it phrased. Yeah, that's where they really become recording artists, you know, like that, the the literal meaning of the term, they are recording artists. Um, they're recording. They're, they're not just, you know, EMI recording artists, the Beatles. Right. No, they are recording and it is the art of recording. That's what they are. They are grappling with and that's what they're creating. And, you know, uh, I... I, I love geeking out about Revolver specifically because, um, you know, that's what you get when there's an album that the sessions start with Tomorrow Never Knows. I know. And, you know, somehow when you listen to those outtakes, uh, you know, it's almost, you know, more technically proficient than the, the released one. Not technically proficient, but experimental yeah they're i mean they're really going for it it's like that's what they were that's what they were coming to the that's what they were coming to the studio with right right and i mean yeah the, the first take of tomorrow never knows is is really just let's see what we can do with this you know it is pure experimentation and i mean i i always just feel like when i listen to that album you can hear the excitement still you know, they are excited about the stuff they're discovering and what they can do. Yeah. Um, and it's also, it's also concise. You know, the, a lot of those songs are two minutes, two and a half minutes. I mean, it's just, you're, they're, they're really just packing so much into a short amount of time. Um, and with great songs, you know, just, just incredible songwriting, like For No One and Eleanor Rigby. Jeez, just brilliant. It, it doesn't hurt to have, you know, 
Lennon and McCartney songs. No, not at all. And, you know, Taxman's pretty good, too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So kind of, you know, going back to the book again, um, what how, how did you get uh, how how did you settle on uh, this period of time? Well, Ken had wanted he said you know we should write a book together and so we kept bouncing ideas back and forth and he, and he threw this one out and at first i thought like eh, i don't know there just doesn't seem to be a story there because uh, i thought you know i hadn't really looked into it but i thought well somebody's covered this right somebody's looked into all things must pass somebody's written about layla somebody's connected all the dots and so i kind of looked around and i thought oh no they haven't um and then the more I looked into it, the more the story took shape and it made sense. And so I said, okay, let's do this. And um, I'm really glad I did because once we started digging and, and interviewing people and just uncovering this mountain of research, some of the stuff has like, I was finding stuff in music papers that has never been referenced. Um, and at one point Ken texted me early on and he said, you know, this is kind of a blank, isn't it? And I went, yeah, it's, there's sort of these, you know, these broad strokes over the years of, you know, Phil Spector was crazy and, and he had to drop out halfway through and, uh, you know, Derek and the Dominoes were the house band and they and to the whole album and, and, uh, you know, this happened, this happened, and maybe John Lennon played on some sessions and, and as we started looking into that, all of this stuff started to fall away and we're like, oh, this is a much more complicated story than this. And this is not how things actually went at all. Um, and I, I had, I said to somebody at some point early on, once I started, you know, realizing this, that, uh, I said, everything I know about this album just about is, is either incorrect or just slightly off to, you know, out of focus or something. Um, so just a, you know, a huge learning experience. It was very stimulating to go through and, and talk to people and, you know, talking to Alan White. And I said, you know, a lot of people say there were two drummers on, on these tracks. He's like, oh, I never played with two drummers. Never. And I thought, wait, what? <laughs> wait, that's something that everybody says. What do you, what do you mean? And uh, so it was, it was just this, you know, constant discovery of new things. Um. And so that's how we settled on it. And that's sort of, you know, what happened afterward. That's probably answering more of your question than you, than you wanted. Um, quick side note, cause you, you mentioned it. it is if, if you're ever, if you ever find yourself uh, on a rainy day with nothing to do, the, my favorite activity is going back to those, the music papers, mm. like the NME and melody maker from like 67, 68, and just, you know, reading it because you find a lot of untapped stuff there. No, it's that is a huge, huge resource that anybody who's writing about this period needs to look into. I mean, that's I I looked I read a lot of those. I started in the 50s, actually, um, and read up through probably 66 complete um, and then have done some sort of, you know, picking after that. I haven't, I haven't finished. I, I really want to go through 1970, but, um, yeah, it's, you, you will discover things in, in looking at those papers that you never even knew existed, just stuff you didn't know you needed to look for and, uh, incredibly valuable. It, it just provides a depth to your research that you couldn't get otherwise. Um, what, do you think is um, the biggest misconception about all things must pass out of all the misconceptions that, you know, you've discovered? I think the biggest one is that Phil Spector overproduced it, um, which is not quite wrong, but it's also not right. Um, he, he handled all of the tracking sessions and especially early on, he was doing his wall of sound thing. And we talk about, I sort of explained this in the book, um, but he's got a lot of musicians in the studio and he's doubling and tripling instruments. And he's really like building up this, uh, the, basically what he did in, you know, the gold star sessions in Los Angeles. 
same technique. Yeah. And uh, if, if anybody's heard the early take of art of dying uh, with Ringo on drums, that's a wall of sound production. That's exactly what he's doing. Um, he has the, he has the rhythm guitars in the background creating this kind of a drone and then he builds the rest of the arrangement on top of that. Um, so he's doing that and he's putting his, he's not actually printing the reverb to tape in a lot of, a lot of cases. Phil McDonald refused to do that, uh, cause it wasn't EMI's, um, practice. And it was, you know, John Leckie, who I spoke to was second engineer on all of the sessions, um, told me that was just something you didn't do because you, you know, obviously you want to have more control in your mix. So if you've printed your effects to tape, you can't change that. If you change your mind, you know, later, you're not going to, you're not gonna be able to do anything about that. So he's, that, that he seems is doing a reoccurring, uh, theme throughout the Beatles story. Um, you know, it goes against EMI policy. You can't do that. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, with Spectre, I think he could push back to a certain degree. I mean, I think he was, there were some effects that are printed to tape. Um, but so, so I guess the point I'm making is that Spectre was arranged, was sort of like setting up these sessions and having them rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, rehearse like he would do in LA and he, so he ran the show from that perspective and he was collaborating with George. He was working to, to sort of, you know, get the sound right. Um, but when it came time for overdubs and, you know, the string, uh, arrangements, the orchestral arrangements and for mixing, that was George. George was deciding, you know, I want strings on this song. And he worked with the arranger, John Barham, who he had known since 1966 on those string arrangements. And he, he, John Barham told me he, George would sing or play a, a melody line that he wanted for a particular arrangement. And then Barham would work out the sort of inner voicing of those arrangements. So George was very involved and he was not, Spectre was not directing this part of the production. And then when it com comes time to mix, um, George and Ken Scott uh, really made all those decisions. They Spectre was there and he was sort of giving his approval or disapproval, but they were really the ones signing off finally on, on what those mixes would sound like. So Phil Spectre certainly produced those sessions, but he, I think the, that he's overproduced it is a, is a misconception, big misconception. The, the wall of sound and the uh, specterization, so to speak, has been uh, very divisive uh, for for a lot of fans of the Beatles solo stuff. Where do you stand, you know, personally uh, on, you know, Phil Spector's style of production? I think for, I Billy Preston said this at one point, old, much older interview, um, that, that he thought it was perfect for George's songs for that album. And I tend to agree. I, I generally, except for maybe one or two songs, but again, that's George and, and Ken Scott ladling on the reverb, you know, that's not so much Spectre. I think though, for what Spectre did in those sessions, I think they work for those songs. I think, you know, for Wawa, it works for the way he, you know, he stacked the instruments on top of each other, basically in the recording. Um, for that, it's good. Let it be. I mean, I don't really care for the string arrangements that he he had done for that, but I think he made generally made those mixes much cleaner and much more immediate than they had been before. I mean, nothing against Glenn Johns, but his mixes just don't have any life. They, you know, they have this kind of cavernous reverb and um, just. So, and I, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, Imagine is a well-produced album. It's, I mean, I've listened to that billions of times over the years and I, I have I don't know the last time I listened to it, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's well-produced and he didn't do very much on Plastic Ono Band. It was, you know, toward the end kind of, kind of supportive, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's variable. I think, um, different albums it works better than others um as much as i i tend to shit on let it be on this show <laughs> he did kind of you know turn a, a stack of tapes 
into an album. Yes. Whether or not it's an album that I like a lot is, you know, doesn't factor into the equation. It it feels like more of an album than the, the, the Glenn John stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the problem is that it, the material was just not as strong, you know, and, and that wasn't anything Spectre could do anything about. Um, no. You know, they, they really needed, they needed a break after the White Album and they didn't, they didn't get one. So that's, you know, let it be was the result. So um, for, for those who may not be, you know, so familiar, again, going back to the book, <laughs> how significant uh, were George and Eric to each other's uh, lives and musical projects in that window of time? They were. Because we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, all things must pass, but, you know, part of the, you know, you know, part of the title of the book is and other assorted love songs so layla right i mean i'm gonna leave the love triangle out for a minute um i mean they're they're overlapping a lot at the you know starting really with the delaney and bonnie stuff in late 69 where george goes on tour with them um you know they're i think george really enjoyed that he's only with them for a couple of weeks and and he has a great time and he, you know, he, I think he bonds with Eric at that time. And it's very important for Eric because he, I think he admires George so much. And he, you know, I think he, in many ways, covets what George has at that point. And, but they kept running into each other and they're playing on each other's sessions. And, you know, when it, when it comes time for All Things Must Pass, Clapton is a big part of that. Bobby Whitlock is a big part of that. But we also have to look at, I don't want to diminish, you know, Clapton's, you know, connection with George. But I also want to say that George, prior to to doing that album, was talking about putting together a house band for Apple artists. And he was collecting people like Billy Preston and, and uh, uh, you know, he had Alan White work on a session earlier in the year. And he had Peter Frampton, of course. So he's got all these people he's working with. And when it comes time to do his own album, it's basically here's the house band for his own album. He's, he's brought all these people together and he's used them on Doris Troy's album and Billy Preston's album. So he's going to use them on his album. And so that's really the, the context for the musicians that are on all things must pass. As far as he and Eric, I think, I think it was very important for Eric to be there because they worked close friends and he had supported him. And I think, I think the experience with Delaney and body was really important for George. And, you know, that was tied in with Eric. So I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but they're, they are, I mean, they're very, they're very much a part of each other's lives, you know, at this point um, and seeing each other all the time and still, you know, still connecting on a musical level. And, you know, we, we, we don't have to go into the love triangle, but I'm, I'm sure everyone listening knows. Yes. You know, what we, what we're implying. Yes. The, I mean, it's, it's, it's the tabloid aspect of this, which, which I think, you know, I was really, really, Ken and I struggled a lot with how to tell that part of the story. And what I came down on at the end was, we, I mean, we agreed on this, that, um, you know, Clapton's relationship with Patty was this kind of trauma bond where they were, they both had these traumatic childhoods and as much as they were physically attracted to each other, the emotional component of that was sort of rooted in these, you know, these really bad childhoods. Um, and they were somehow sensing that in each other emotionally. I mean, not, not to get too deep psychological about this stuff, but um, that, that made perfect sense because, you know, they were not going to be this great, you know, legendary romance. It was, it was, you know, they, they ended up not having a good relationship. Um, it was tumultuous and they ended up divorcing. So look, you know, looking at it in the whole context of the relationship, not just this one year period. Um, it's, it's not this sort of, you know, name and lights kind of romance and, and, uh, you know, legendary, uh, story it's i think it's something much more human and and honestly much more interesting than than the hollywood version 
yeah than the guy trying to woo his friend's girl right right and it's that's not really what it was right i mean it's it it does have this tawdry aspect to it but i think when you look at the people and their personalities and their backgrounds you know it it makes sense and you know and when you're writing about people's lives personally i feel like you you have to be empathetic you have to sort of put yourself in their shoes and see things the way they saw them as much as you can uh without being you know judgmental um even i mean even though objectively yeah. it's outrageous <laughs> behavior <laughs> i mean i i I've, I've said on this show before in a, in a kind of a joking way um you know the beatles when you really just break it down are just a bunch of guys who just slept with each other's wives. <laughs> and that's that's how you can sum it up. But that's neither here nor right, there. No, I'm not qualified to <laughs> to comment on that. Yeah, although it wasn't really a question oh, no, yeah, either. Yeah. It yeah. was just a one of my throw it at the wall and see if it sticks kind of comments that I will probably get flack for from somewhere. Yeah. Um. So something I like to do on this show. Um, it, I really should change the name of this part because um, it, it's really become not what it is. It's I, I call these the quick fire questions and the, it's the, the, the questions are short, but the answers are almost always not. Mm. So I, I'd like to ask you kind of, I, I'm sure you saw this one coming. What's your favorite Beatle album? I mean, Revolver's the the quick answer, um, but it, you know, it changes. I think for everybody, it probably changes. Um, there are things that I love. I mean, A Hard Day's Night is is pretty perfect, you know. It's hard to beat that. Um, and Abbey Road is, you know, pretty good, too. Side 2 is, I, sometimes I just put that on and I, and I just kind of bask in the wonder of it. Like, this is a perfect thing. Um yeah, I mean, and the it's the White Album is just is is people just gush about like Sergeant Pepper, but it's right. you know Abbey or Revolver's the the number one Beatle album. And as I I say this on the show, it's like that's the that's the correct answer. But you know, <laughs> yeah, Abbey if, there, Road if there's a correct like answer, the, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's it, it's Revolver, but Abbey Road yeah. is like a very close second because that's that's another album I kind of consider to be perfect in yeah, most yeah. ways. Right. Um, not not even, really I mean, a, a ton of clunkers on that one. No. And even, you know, people, people uh, say bad things about Maxwell silver hammer, but the first time I heard that as a teenager was on the radio at the station that played, you know, classic rock and Beatle tunes all the time. And I did, I didn't know all the Beatles songs and albums at that point. And I have, I remember I'm lying in bed and I have the headphones on one afternoon after school and this song comes on and I'm like, what the hell is this? And I was just laughing hysterically because it was ridiculous. Cause I'm, I'm like, you know, you're hearing, you know, revolution, you're hearing, Hey Jude, and you're hearing, you know, a day in the life. And like, yeah. this is the Beatles. Right. And then this, this completely absurd, <laughs> ridiculous thing. And yeah, they did that too. So it was, it was one of those moments where like, Oh, okay. I mean, Hilarious. But e even Maxwell Silver Hammer, like I think the best thing that's happened to, you know, appreciating the Beatles music in the last, you know, all ever since it came out is those those rock band uh stems. So oh, you yeah. can, you know, deconstruct the album yourself. And it's even Maxwell Silver Hammer, it's if I'm in a bad mood, I'll put on the the isolated guitar tracks and the and the Moog tracks. Cause right. they, it's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautifully produced and, you know, that was one of George's complaints that, you know, he had them, had them working their butts off on these, you know, songs, these granny songs. But, um, you know, by that point they should have been like, that's what they did. They, they put all this work into, into these songs, no matter what they were. And that's what made a lot of them brilliant. I mean, you know, Andrew Bird can sing lyrically is, is pretty flat. Like there's not a whole lot to it, but that is a magic piece of, of music. 
because of the work they put into the guitar playing. I mean, that is just an incredible, incredible sounding thing. Um, and, you know, Lennon could dismiss that as a piece of writing, but it was, you know, it's not just the writing, it's the, it's the performance, it's the whole thing, it's the recording. It's those, what I assume, you know, the Epiphone Casino doing the guitar part through that Vox Solid State Am. Yeah. It's, the tone just makes, makes me happy. And it's also, you know, it's George and Paul playing that in tandem third thirds apart you know it's like that's a fast part that's a tough part to play solo and then you have to play that with somebody you know there's an energy between two people who are doing that in the studio there's an intensity um and there you know there's a lot of that scattered throughout their their recordings like they're playing these tracks together that's i mean it's one of so here's a technical you know sidebar but that's one of the things about playing on four track is that to consolidate tracks, you have to play parts together. So sometimes there'd be four, four Beatles playing on one track together uh, as an overdub. It's like, you, you can't always just, you know, bounce everything. Right. Right. And you don't have, you know, 96 tracks yeah, another or, or endless tracks like you have now. So you, you know, you could overdub, you know, anything by yourself you wanted to, they had to play together. So, and, I, and that's, you know, that's the uh, going back to the yeah. album question is like revolver they're on four track. They have to do that. They have to play together in order to achieve the things they want to achieve. And the fact that they were able to do that on four track. Yeah. Is incredible. Yeah. As, I mean, Sergeant Pepper is a great technical achievement too, but I mean, revolver is they're discovering that they can do these things. They're making all these innovations um, with this very limited technology. It's I, I've I've considered you know revolver, it's um it's the early it, it's the perfect midway point. It's you have the sensibility of the early Beatles, but you can look through the door and see what's to come. Right. Yeah. It really it really sets them on their path for the rest of their career. On on the flip side of the question I asked you, um, what's your least favorite Beatle album? Everybody says Yellow Submarine, don't they? Uh... <laughs> You'd actually be surprised. Really, it's it's not always Yellow Submarine. Unfortunately, I, I mean, a it, lot it, of the time people say Beatles for sale. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, that one gets a that one gets dismissed a lot. Um, there's some great tracks. I mean, side one of Beatles for Sale is great. Um, I mean, I probably listen. It's a two-way tie at the bottom with "Let It Be" and and "Yellow Submarine." I just, I mean, I listen to individual songs, but I don't sit down and listen. It's not a, yeah. they're not they're not whole albums, you know. As much as Phil Spector, to his credit, no. made it into a cohesive album, it's just not it's not a for me a pleasure to listen to. Well, I, I I'd even go as so far to say as it's not an album, it's a it's a soundtrack to yeah. a a bad idea <laughs> yeah i mean that's a whole other whole other conversation about get back and let it be and what peter jackson is i mean i'm looking forward to what peter jackson is doing but um yeah maybe a conversation for another time but it let it be is kind of the i said the the secret correct answer for the best one was revolver the secret correct answer for least is let it be yeah i don't know why i say secret it's I say it every fucking show <laughs> because everybody pretty much agrees with that. Yeah. It's just, I, I still feel like I'm shouting into the void. So no, no. I, I tend to repeat myself in case no one tunes back in. What's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, if that's a, a selection you're able to make. I mean, I really can't. I, there's just too much, you know? Um, I, I mean, I do remember hearing a day in the life for the first time. And I think my brain was probably different after hearing that, you know, it's such a profound experience. The first time you hear it, where did you hear a day in life for the first time? Was it on that thrift store, Sergeant Pepper? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I had the 62 to 66 compilation and I had that that Sergeant Pepper LP 
And so, you know, drop the needle on side one, listen through, flip it, drop the needle on side two, get to day in the life and, and, you know, have to get up off the floor because I wasn't prepared for that. The, the sad fate of that song is, um, you know, because of records and how it is, it's, you always have the inner groove distortion, right? So it's, it's hard to find a copy of Sergeant Pepper that led or a, a day in the life is audible. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have an original British mono copy with a lot of inner groove distortion and it's not something I'm thrilled with. Yeah. It's a pain, isn't it? That's the problem with collecting vinyl. Yeah. It's the, the, it was like a comic strip that I always go back to that it said, you know, the two things that drew me to vinyl were the inconvenience and the cost. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Cause you know, when you take a step back as like a record collector, you realize how fucking silly it all is. Oh, it's, to, I, yeah. you know, the, you, you reach a point where it, it, you know, stops being about the music and you're basically a stamp collector. Yeah. I saw somebody once uh, recently post, it was a meme, you know, on Facebook or something. And they said, I said, I've come to the realization that book, reading books and collecting book, books are two different hobbies. And, you know, that's, that's what it can be with records too, is like record collecting and listening to music are two different hobbies. And I, I had to come to a point where I thought, okay, I don't want to collect. I want to listen to music. This is about the music. Right. And, um, you know, so I had to step away from that and, and just concentrate on enjoying the music. I, I, I think I, I'm like halfway in between because, you know, as someone who, you know, grew up with the internet in the age of, you know, witnessing the CD die, sure, you know, as you grow up uh like you don't own music anymore it's like the music just exists in the cloud and so i feel like uh for a lot of people in my generation like record collecting is a way that you can you know tangibly connect with the i don't know if that's a word um with the music that you like i mean i think there is something to physically putting a needle on a record you know there's a there's a there's a physical part of the experience of listening to music whether that's good or bad i don't know i think it's a thing i think that actually exists i mean we do things and we have associations because of our actions not just because of our thoughts or because of passive listening so you know i think i do think that's a part of the experience um, I, you know, I have also transferred a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of needle drops over the years, which I had to get away from because it's so time consuming and tedious, but I would transfer a lot of things yeah. from vinyl and clean it up, you know, using clip, uh, click repair and all, you know, all these, all these, all the software and, um, you know, then convert it to lossless and then put it on my iPad or put it on something that I could listen to it, um, you know, as a digital file. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't really miss the, you know, putting the needle on the record in that case. Like I've, I've transferred it. I have a good clean copy. It sounds good. And, you know, I can pull it up anytime I want to. So it's, it's very convenient, but you know, I do still have a record collection. It's not massive or anything, but, um, I, I kind of, I do like my jazz. I mean, (laughs) it's a lot easier to, to click on a on a wave file or a flack file than right. it is to take the record out of the inner sleeve put it on the thing get the brush yeah get the wet brush yeah then you clean the stylus and then you put the needle on and then you have to do it again like right 20 minutes later yeah exactly i mean the the again i don't know that this is good or bad but you have to be engaged with with flipping the record like you you you're not just sitting there pressing a button and being passive and you like you have to get up and do something so um you know if you like oh, that I, i've that's said great. that beatles singles box set that came out a few years ago it's like you you need to seriously have stamina for that yeah because <laughs> you're flipping over a record every you know two two and a half minutes and you do this like 40 times yeah just to listen to like 
you know, a two LP compilation worth of songs. Right. I mean, you think about, you know, DJs were doing that and people who would have, have record parties, you know, in the, in the sixties would do that. Like they would just play singles all the time. The album wasn't a, wasn't a thing until later. I know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just frustrated because I'm, I'm looking at my shelf and I see the Beatles singles box looking at me and it's, you know, I'm yeah. just cursing it. I know. I mean, I have two, I have a couple of boxes but, of, of singles too I've collected and, and it's the same way. Like I don't play them very often. I will say though, I be, I, w- I became converted to the power of the original single mono mix when I got a Parlophone 45 of I Want to Hold Your Hand and I put it on the turntable and I sat down and I went, okay, I get it. It just, it's, it's a powerful experience. You don't get that listening to the stereo mix. You don't get that. I mean, to some degree you get it maybe in the mono mix on the mono masters, but that 45 has power in the, in the grooves still. Well, and those, those Parlophone 45s were mastered so well and you know so loud so they just hit you in a way that a lot of records don't yeah no they and it's funny they you know they they were always trying to figure out what the americans were doing to try to make their records louder or sound a certain way i think they did they did a pretty good job i I think it reached its peak you know trying to figure out what the americans were doing with i feel fine and still the americans didn't realize that the british were trying to cater to them and then just kind of went full hog it's like oh you know listen to this it's so dry let's add more reverb meanwhile the original (laughs) tape is drenched in reverb itself right right fuck (laughs) well uh well i i think it's it's that part of the second guessing george second i was gonna say second guessing george martin and the beatles not a not a good idea I know, I know. I'm not second guessing George Martin. I'm no, no. second guessing Dave Dexter oh, Jr. No. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, praise be to the Beatles. I yes. didn't say anything no. bad about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's you know I can I can feel the sniper rifle dot on my forehead. <laughs> but it's it's that time of the show where I I turn things over to you. Uh, where where can people find your show and where can people find your book? So the show is Producing the Beatles and you can find it on iTunes. You, um, really anywhere podcast, they they farm it out to who knows where. It's probably on a, on a truck driving through your neighborhood right now uh, coming out of a speaker. Um, you can also go to producingthebeatles.com. Statistically, that's probably true. <laughs> it might actually be a, a better way of making money on podcasts. Um the the website is producingthebeatles.com you can go there and you know download from there the and you can also follow me on twitter at pt beatles or there's a facebook page for producing the beatles uh, if you want to follow there which you know both places have updates and the book is available everywhere it's on amazon it's on barnes and noble it's probably in your hopefully in your local bookstore perfect I, I, I've been trying to find a copy, but I, it, <laughs> it's gotta love Canada. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it'll be there soon. It's, it, it, it always happens. I mean, there's been cases where like record store day things don't show up for like eight months oh. and then suddenly they're here. Wow. And that's happened with books. Wow. I'm sure. And with the border closed, it's not like I can drive to Buffalo and go to Barnes and Noble and it's like, okay, there it is. Right, right. Well, hopefully you'll get it soon. But I digress. <laughs> um now it ta- now uh fuck, I'm gonna edit that out, maybe. Um <laughs> now a time f- now it's time. <laughs> I'm stumbling over my words today. Is Jesus it, is Christ. It, now it's time. You can tell I haven't recorded a show in a while. <laughs> I know. I have to warm up. It's it's time to hear from the show sponsor. It's me. <laughs> and then I'll edit in my fucking, you know, you Hi, I'm Ethan Alexanian, founder, president, and CEO of Fans on the Run. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. I certainly have. Oh, what a good time it's been. 
The show is also streaming on all of the major podcast distribution platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you're listening on any of those, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, please leave a review. We're on Facebook at Fans on the Run Podcast, Twitter at Fans on the Run Pod, and on Instagram at Fans on the Run Podcast, where I post all the graphics for the show, including this episode's graphic. If you have any requests of people you'd like to see on the show, questions, comments about an episode, or anything else, you can reach me at fansontherunpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you, me. That was very insightful. Well, Jason, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and putting up with me today. No, this was great. I had a great time. I, I'm I'm thrilled that you had a great time. Yeah, it's always fun to talk about the Beatles. And and you're a fun host, so, you know, this is great. Oh, I try. And to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.